what ifs are both incredible and awful. How many times do you sit back in life? It tends to happen when you're doing something solitary, maybe yard work, gardening, maybe painting a fence, and you start thinking, what if I had done that instead of that? What if that had happened instead of that? Do you ever find that that creeps in? What ifs in that case can be a little rough. But what ifs can also be very useful. What if we had never stopped going to the moon? Would you be able to vacation there by now like you go to Cabo? What do you think? Where are you going to go? Well, I can only get vacation time in the winter, so I think we're going to go lunar. I think so. I've been hearing good things. Oh, the, the gravity stuff's kind of fun. The kids like that. I think that might have been a possibility. What if currency had never been invented? I will give you three cows for that car. That's what I'll give you. I'll carry them in one by one over the next six weeks. Because it's going to be a long hike from home. What if we had cars that ran on garbage? See, there are a lot of cool what ifs. Well, if we look back to yesterday, what was the biggest story to come along in London, Ontario? Biggest story? was the story about a woman saying, yeah, I was having an EEG and I woke up and I was being sexually assaulted. And there was a news conference about it. Charges were laid and we're still waiting for that to play out. It'll play out over a long time in the courts. But we started to wonder about the what if. What if you do have a concern about something happening to you within the healthcare system? Obviously, there were avenues for this woman to go. That was great. And obviously, there's there's a little something there. Charges have been laid. We'll see again how it all plays out. But what if you had another concern? Well, I started poking around thinking, do we have a patient advocacy organization in Ontario somewhere that you could just call and say, hey, here's the, the thing. Here's what happened to me. And what I've been able to find out so far is that, no, we really don't. We have something called Patients Canada, which essentially reverts back to patient ombudsman. But they're kind of a last resort thing. And in fact, if you have an issue, you have to go to the specific spot. So you have a regulatory body that oversees doctors. You have a regulatory body that oversees nurses. You have other regulatory bodies for other parts of healthcare. Doesn't that sound messy? Shouldn't there be one place? Now, hey, patient ombudsman, they do what they can. They help guide people to the right spots. But I think there's a lot of frustration that goes on. And if you've gone through a situation like this, I can now understand it. Where, you know what, it was so frustrating, there was so much red tape, I just stopped. The what if led to a concern. Why? Why do we have that? So I thought that was was interesting, that we don't necessarily have that major regulatory body. Instead, we have bodies that oversee, and I'm wondering how closely they're tied. You know, if, if you're going up against somebody, but they're on the same team as the people you're going up against... That's no good. That doesn't work out very well. And we have that in too many places. Now, it's too late to bring it into the election campaign. So I don't think this is going to change any time in the near future. And whoever winds up being elected tomorrow will have all kinds of things to deal with before they get to that. But I found that pretty interesting. That, that's something we do not have 
in this province, and I take it because we're dealing with Patients Canada, across this country. As far as the election goes, we don't know how it's going to turn out yet, but there are people who are doing a little bit of wondering. And in fact, if you missed it this morning, I want to take you back to this because Craig Needles was able to speak with Professor Barry Kay. He's an associate professor of political science at Laurier. And he basically looked and talked about how things could shake out tomorrow. I think it more likely than not, if I was betting, I would say it's a better than a 50-50 bet that the Conservatives will have a small majority. But it's by no means certain, and I wouldn't use the figure 89% at all. Um, basically, uh, London for sure. London, the three seats are, I think, pretty safely in the NDP column. Same with Windsor. They're picking up uh, the NDP, that is, they're picking up in Sarnia. I think they have a good chance at Chatham. They're going to probably pick up Brantford. They're going to gain seats in the uh, Kitchener-Waterloo region. Um, the area, if in fact the conservatives fall short, um, the people, I've got feelers out to the different parties asking them what they think may happen. Um, and the area probably to look at are some of the seats east of Toronto, seats um, that uh, currently we have conservative but by small margins, seats like Peterborough, uh, seats like Durham, uh, seats maybe like Northumberland, maybe Whitby. Um, those seats, if people look at the map, will find them just a little bit east of the, of the GTA. Um, if, in fact, the NDP overperforms and starts winning in those areas, and Peterborough is a very close seat, uh, Bay of Quinty is perhaps another one. If the NDP starts winning in those seats, or if they pick up seats in Mississauga, because currently we don't have them doing very well in Mississauga. They're doing well in Brampton, just north of there, but not in Mississauga. If the NDP starts winning seats in Mississauga or in these, this region just east of, um, east of Toronto, perhaps that would be an indication that the Conservatives won't have as good a night as we're expecting. So that is Professor Barry Kay from Laurier, Associate Professor of Political Science, and the way he sees things shaking down. So he points to the three seats in London, and I know we can kind of count London as also being elegant Middlesex London. So essentially we have four seats there. He went on to say, went on to touch on that, that it does, you know, look like it would stay conservative, but the other three seats would all be NDP in London. So that's interesting that Windsor would be going NDP. And did you catch the beginning? Remember we talked about earlier this week, could we find somebody who had a big enough basement or a big enough backyard that we could put all 13 million people in this province together and we could organize at least a little something so that we get a minority? Well, Professor Kay says he can see a slim majority for the PCs. I don't know if that's what we want. I think we want minority. I don't know. I still haven't heard anyone who has a big enough basement or backyard or who is willing to have us spill things and break stuff and who knows what would it Well, You put 13 million people together, anything can happen. So that's the way he sees it shaking out. One of the other things that will be very interesting to watch is the vote from young Ontarians. You always have people who are able to vote for the very first time. And schools have done a pretty good job, and I don't want to say every single school, but for the most part, have done a pretty good job, and there will be teachers who get really involved in this, in introducing more political elements to students. In fact, in Ontario, we're one of the best provinces for this because we actually have civics class. Some provinces don't even have civics. And when you look at 2015, 
when you count up young Ontarians who are labeled as being between the ages of 18 and 24, you had a voter turnout of 56.2%. That's pretty good. I want to see what that is in this particular election. Because somebody made a great point in a Toronto Star article talking about what happens in schools and that, yes, we do have civics class, but what we need to do is overhaul it because it deals a lot with the past. And I think what we do too often is take history and make it sound like, uh, here we go. Here's, we got to learn some history. Yeah, yeah. Old dusty people from the 1800s and before. Yeah, yeah. Okay. That was the name of the prime minister. Fine. Boring. And it's not exciting enough. And one of the things that has been raised as an argument is that civics class does too much history and doesn't focus on what young people have the power to do. So 56.2% last time of young people, that's good. I hope we have a number just like that or above. But it is a case where this needs to be looked at. You've, you've got to find a way to engage young people. When the election campaign started, I wanted to see everybody grab their favorite 9 to 13-year-old and take them through the whole process. Hey, here's what's going to happen. If you had a grandchild or if you had a child... Here's actually how this plays out. Here's why it's important. Here's why it's actually interesting, because it can be. And it turns them one day into an informed voter. Well, here's hoping civics class can focus in on that a little bit better. We have the luxury of having it in our school system. It's time to make better use of it. We are going to take a break. Still to come this hour, we are going to be talking about an anniversary that looks back to something that maybe allowed us to go to the polls tomorrow. And that is D-Day. Today is the anniversary of D-Day, and we'll be talking about that with a military professor at 140. Looking back at the story, how many of us can say right now, and this is a test of history knowledge, if I say, describe to me the events of D-Day, what were they? Um, okay, there was a beach, Normandy, there was a lot of fighting, and we won! Can anyone go... Any further in depth than that? We're going to try and go a little further in depth than that. We'll do it at 140. And up next, we've been getting a lot of calls to our newsroom or a lot of messages through Facebook and email. And they've been asking different questions about tomorrow's election. Like, what if I don't have a voter card? By the way, those, you know, I find the voter cards look pretty fancy this year. They're yellow and black. I think they look pretty good. So whoever came up with that. Nice job. I don't know how expensive it was, but they look good. What if you don't have one of those things? What if you have somebody else's? What if you don't have an address to send that to? These are all questions that we have been getting in the newsroom. Next, we will get someone from Elections Ontario to answer those and others as we head toward a decision day. Remember, you can hear coverage on Global News Radio 980 CFPL. We'll have loads of coverage throughout the evening tomorrow that will keep tabs on what's happening both locally and provincially as we make our way toward what appears to be a brand new party in power. This is Global News Radio, 980 CFBL. You seen the story that says we're eating more eggs? And it highlights breakfast sandwiches and the growth of the breakfast sandwich. Used to just be the Egg McMuffin. And then everybody decided, no, we can do a breakfast sandwich. People like breakfast sandwiches. Drive through in the morning, breakfast sandwich. And people are just eating breakfast all day. 
Breakfast for dinner. Who wants an omelet? Well, that story may have some actual truth to it, but we'll kind of go through some of the elements with an egg farmer of Ontario just after 2 o'clock. We want to cover off a few of the things that have been brought up to our newsroom leading up to Election Day. We get questions all the time. We do our best to answer them, but we've grouped some of them together now. Some of them that may be able to help you. Like, what time can I vote tomorrow? Advanced polls. You know what? They're the way to go. And I keep saying to myself every year, I'm going to make use of the advanced polls. And I never do. So, yeah, I'm stuck trying to figure out, okay, go here, and then we've got this to do, and then we can fit in going to vote right here. Anybody else in that boat? Well, if you have questions about Election Day tomorrow and exactly what you have to follow, what you have to do, what you have to bring, let's refresh our memory right now. Joining us from Elections Ontario is Cara DeGrange, who is the Bilingual Communications Coordinator with Elections Ontario. Cara, how are you doing on the eve of the election? Yeah, things are very busy. (laughs) Well, we'll try not to keep you too long, but we keep getting all kinds of calls in the 980 CFPL newsroom, and maybe it would be great if we could just throw out some answers. So can I just run through some of the things that we've been asked? For sure, let's do it. Okay, well, here's the first one, and it is, what if I have not received a voter card in the mail? Yeah, so you don't actually need a voter information card to vote. It's always uh, something that's handy to have. It'll give you uh, an idea of where to vote. So if you, don't, if you haven't received one and you're not unsure of where to vote, the easiest way to find your voting location is on our website at elections.on.ca. Um, so there, when you go on the website, you can type in your postal code, and then it'll tell you which, um, which voting location to go to. And then the other thing that you'll need to bring with you when you go vote is a piece of identification that has both your name and current residential address on it. Okay, so... If you have that with you, then you can still vote. You don't need the card. Would that be a license, a health card that would work okay? Yeah, uh, so anything that has both your name and current residential address, it can be a piece of government-issued ID, but it can also be, you know, like a, a bill, like a a credit card statement, something that has both of that information on it. And we have a long list of what's acceptable ID on our website as well, if you're unsure. Great. Okay. Now, in terms of having to register at a polling station, how mm-hmm. difficult is that? Do you wait in the line as if you were going to vote and then you get to the front and say, hey, by the way, I'm registered. Can I do that now? Mm-hmm. Or, or do you handle it a different way? So there's actually going to be two lines um, when you go to vote. So one of them will be for people who have their card and the information is correct. It's no problem. And then if you don't have your card or you need to update your information, we also have a line for that. Um, So that's not a problem. It doesn't take very long. Uh, Just make sure to bring that ID with you because you will need it. Um, And it shouldn't be any harder than than the the other way with the card. Cara DeGrange with us, Bilingual Communications Coordinator with Elections Ontario as we look ahead to Election Day and answer some of the questions we've been getting in our 980 CFPL newsroom. Okay, here's another one. It says, what if I have received someone else's card in the mail? Um, Maybe they've dealt with this already, but just in case somebody hasn't, what should they do? 
For sure. So, I mean, this could happen. Maybe someone, uh, you know, used to live at your address or what have you, and then you received their card. Um, disregard it. If that card doesn't have your information on it, you won't be able to use it to vote. You still need your ID with you. Um, if you, so again, like I mentioned, if you haven't received a card with your name on it, you can still vote. Just make sure to bring your ID uh, with you as well. But if a card comes in and it's not for you, don't need to use it. <laughs> Perfect. Now, you don't need to send it back or anything like that or try and notify Elections Ontario? If you'd like to notify us, that'd be great. Um, but again, at this point, we don't want to cause any more trouble with you. So if you if you uh, have received a card, you can disregard it. You can still vote. So don't worry about that. Gotcha. Okay, here's another question that we have received. If you have no fixed address, can you still vote in the election? Yes. Um, so this is something that we work with community organizations across the province for for those who don't have a permanent uh, fixed address. Uh, we work with homeless shelters. We also work uh, with food banks across the province. Um, what we do is we we have a different uh, authorization form for individuals who don't have a fixed permanent address. And so when we um, we ask that uh, one of those forms gets filled out uh, by someone who works uh, within a shelter or um, 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 Food bank, sorry. Um, And so they work with electors who don't have fixed addresses to create that document that then acts as identification. And we have more information about that on our website as well. Great. Kara DeGrange with Mm -hmm. us, Bilingual Communications Coordinator with Elections Ontario. Kara, anything else that potential voters really need to know heading into tomorrow? Well, just make sure to bring that ID and remember that polls are open on June 7th from 9 a.m. to 9 p.m. 9 a.m. to 9 p.m. Try not to go at 8.55. <laughs> I mean, if you're eager, you can stand by the door, and that's good, too. <laughs> How about 8.55 at the other end of the day? Try and get there maybe oh, a touch be. earlier? Uh, yeah, so if you show up before 9 p.m., uh, you will still be able to vote. Even if there's a line, just go in the line, and uh, that's fine as well. <laughs> okay. Kara, thanks so much for your help today. Not a problem. Have a good day. You, too. That is Kara DeGrange, Bilingual Communications Coordinator with Elections Ontario. Yeah, I don't, I may be one of those people. What if I'm, what if I'm that guy? 8.55, I walk through the door, and then all the elections people have to look and say, all right, sure, here you go. Go behind the little cardboard thing. Mark your ballot. I'll try to be there earlier. I promise. It ends up being a really busy day, so I'll try to be there earlier. We have an interesting conversation coming up because here's the history test for you today. This is like the history exam for someone who no longer has to take exams. If you were to describe D-Day, this is the anniversary of D-Day. What would you describe it as? What happened? Well, boats, the beach, Normandy, uh, fighting. Can we go further in depth than that? Maybe not. So we're going to talk more about the story and what it did and what it actually means. Because who knows? We can't say for sure. We started off the show with a few what ifs. What if the Germans had won? Would we be going to the polls tomorrow? There's one of those games that you can play, and it's not a particularly fun one. Instead, yes, we are. We have that democratic vote. We have that ability to mark our ballot. And D-Day plays a role. We will discuss that in about 10 minutes from now. News is next. This is Global News Radio 980 CFPL. Canadians have one of the best reputations internationally. We're known for being polite. No one really understands how big our country is. But that's okay. That's fine. 
what is important here is that we have a good reputation. And maybe it was just made better. I don't know if you saw the story about the guys in Vegas. You had a guy just sitting in his car in Vegas. All of a sudden, the two back doors open and two guys jump in. That's kind of freaky. He's not an Uber driver, this person in his car in Vegas. He's actually from Vegas. And all of a sudden, the doors open, two guys get in. What usually happens in the movies after that? A gun is pulled, some kind of threat, get out, you're being carjacked. All those things would run through your mind, right? Well, these guys wanted to go somewhere, and they thought they were getting into an Uber. That was wrong, but they told the guy, we'll give you 75 bucks, and he decided to take them anywhere. And here's the real, real important part of this story. He listened to them talk for a while as probably thoughts of, do they have a gun? Am I being carjacked? Ran through his mind and realized they were Canadian and then felt he was okay. (laughs) Now, I think he's going to try and visit them. They live in Edmonton. I hope he knows that Edmonton and Las Vegas are different places, especially in January. So maybe you might want to visit in the summer. Edmonton's a great place, but it gets cold. Much colder than Vegas, where it hardly ever rains. Tomorrow, there will be a hockey game in Vegas. Could be the last NHL game of the year. Could see Alexander Ovechkin and John Carlson win their first ever Stanley Cup. We'll see. Uh, If you're looking for a sports note, are there any Blue Bombers fans in the crowd at the moment? Blue Bombers fans? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Matt Nichols just went down and he was at practice and he got up and reportedly threw his helmet and then left the field. And so that's not good news ahead of a CFL season. Canadians are known for being wonderful. And if we go back far enough in time, Canadians are known for doing a lot of pretty important things on this day, June the 6th. D-Day. We'll discuss that next. This is Global News Radio 980 CFPL. All kinds of projections continue to come through. Here's another one we heard earlier on the show after Craig Needles spoke with Professor Barry Kay from Laurier that he felt there would be a slim but still a majority for the PCs tomorrow. Now, Farah Nasser from Global News has just made note of an Ipsos Canada poll done for Global News, and it shows if the election were today, as she writes it, seat-rich 905 region of the GTA would deliver Doug Ford and the PCs a majority government. They are sitting at 39%, NDP 36%, Liberals 19%. So that's an Ipsos Canada poll done for global news. Across this country, we are lucky enough to be able to have elections. Would we have those if things had gone differently on this day in 1944? I don't know. That's another one of those what-if questions we were dealing with at the start of the show. But this is a day that we have to stop and recognize. And it doesn't just have to be on the 75th anniversary or the 50th anniversary. It kind of needs to be each and every year. It was on this day, June 6th in 1944, that we had the Allied invasion of Normandy. And joining us right now is Professor of Military History at the University of Victoria, Dr. David Zimmerman. Dr. Zimmerman, thanks so much for taking some time for us. 
thanks for having me. Is it over-dramatizing it to say we may not be able to have a provincial election in Ontario had things gone differently on June 6, 1944? Well, as a historian, I hate to predict what might have happened if something had gone a different direction. Um, but I think certainly um, for Europe particularly, the ability for Europeans to hold elections was guaranteed by the results of D-Day and the Normandy campaign. Okay, then let's look at what D-Day did and what it was all about. Because for a lot of us, if we're looking back to our own history lessons, we can remember that D-Day existed. Some people can remember the date. Others remember that it was a successful day in Canadian history and that Canada played a big part in it. But overall, sometimes we struggle with the actual significance of it. Where would you start in describing that significance, Dr. Zimmerman? Well, I think it was one of the greatest battles ever fought, and certainly in the scope of the of the attack uh, on the invasion beaches, and there were five of them, of which Canada took the lead in one of the five beaches, Juneau Beach. Uh, it was certainly the, a scope beyond comparison with any battle that had been fought before or since. It's also the significance of the the fact that it really marked the end of any hope that Nazi Germany had of surviving the conflict and of maintaining the gains that they had won in the early part of the conflict. When we look at how it played out, we always hear how difficult a battle it was. You just said it's one of the greatest battles ever fought. What made it that way? Well, part of it was the size and the scope, but also it was the complexity. It's hard to imagine how difficult it is to move tens of thousands, in fact, hundreds of thousands of, of personnel, of vehicles, of uh, tanks, of everything that a modern army needs to fight a war, over 30 to 40 miles of ocean. And to get it onto uh, defended beaches, to actually be able to overcome the obstacles put up by the defenders and then to move inland is an incredible accomplishment. Um, and it's almost without parallel uh, in terms of certainly its scope. And it was a new technique of warfare, amphibious warfare, uh, that really made all this possible. Okay, you say amphibious warfare. What does that refer to? Really, it's an invasion, that a land army attacks uh, across a large uh, ocean barrier. So they come in in landing craft uh, or amphibious tanks, and then they move inland very quickly uh, to secure a, a perimeter for the rest of the army to come over and continue the battle. Dr. David Zimmerman with us, professor of military history at the University of Victoria, as we really analyze what D-Day was and why it was so significant, why today is such a significant day going back to June 6th of 1944. Dr. Zimmerman, let's get to Canada's role in this. Mm-hmm. Set the scene for us in terms of what we were like as a country and what our involvement was at that point in World War II. Well, Canada had joined the war when Britain did, at least a couple weeks after Britain did. uh, Canada declared war, but Canada was involved right from the beginning in 1939. 
But the Canadian Army, with except for some limited involvement in France in 1940, and then, of course, the disastrous uh, Dieppe raid in 1942, um, the Canadian Army had mostly remained in Britain. Uh, in 1943, some troops had been sent to Italy to participate in the Sicilian invasion, but the most of the Canadian Army remained in Britain, waiting for the chance to get back to France to begin the re- to, to begin the liberation of that country and the and the rest of Western Europe. For Canada um, to have played such a significant role really shows in many ways Canada's coming of age as a major industrial military power, perhaps not on the scope of the United States or Great Britain, but certainly an important force which made a major contribution to many aspects of the war effort. We have to remember there was not just the 15,000 soldiers that landed, Canadian soldiers that landed on June 6th, but there were 10,000 Canadian sailors supporting the invasion, and there were at least as many Canadian airmen in the skies overhead. Dr. Zimmerman, when we begin to look at casualties, how significant do we have to, or how significantly do we have to pay attention to how many people gave their lives at Normandy? Well, I think it's really important, and I'm glad you said Normandy as opposed to D-Day. 340 Canadians were killed on June 6, 1944. But the total Normandy campaign, and there was a prolonged campaign to break out of Normandy into the rest of France, went on well into August 1944. And a total of over 5,000 Canadians gave their lives. And that's a very, very important sacrifice that Canadians made. And we need to remember... We need to really remember how big a battle it was. It wasn't just one day. It was a battle that went on for months in order to defeat the German army, and really it resulted in the destruction of the German army in France. So this particular battle you would look at as being something that did that, destroyed the German army in France, and and recovering from that got tough for them, didn't it? It did, although there was tough fighting ahead. The Canadian Army participated in several crucial campaigns afterwards along the French coast, liberating French port cities, and then into Holland. The Canadian single most important contribution, I believe, of the Canadian Army in the liberation of Europe took place in Normandy. And it's important to consider that D-Day is just the beginning of the prolonged campaign that we call the Normandy Campaign. So 5,000 Canadian soldiers. Yes. 5,000. I mean, if we go back in history, can we find anything that relates to that in any way? Some of of the battles of the First World War, certainly. Yeah? Yes. Wow. And in terms of how Canada was seen and how Canadians were seen coming out of the Second World War, did it change international perception of Canada in any way? Oh, absolutely. Canada was considered to be a significant player on the world stage, particularly as we went into the Cold War. Canada as a founding member of NATO, uh, providing troops back into Germany uh, beginning in the early 1950s. All of that was a key part in making Canada an important, significant world player. Dr. Zimmerman, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for all of your knowledge on this subject. Well, thank you very much for having me. Take care.
Bye-bye. That is Dr. David Zimmerman. That's why we need to look at this day, because it flies by. It's June 6th, last month of school for the kids. Weather's usually fairly warm, maybe a little warmer than it is right now. But that's why it becomes so important. And it's, yes, D-Day, but Dr. Zimmerman made a great point in looking and saying, this is not just, the battle didn't happen in one day. Canada did not come about as a nation in one day. As much as it began here, this was new, this was moving thousands and thousands of people, but it was the start of a campaign. Campaign that, and did you know this? I didn't know this. Campaign that saw 5,000 Canadians lose their lives. And it's a campaign that ended up crippling the German army. And from there, you make other gains. Next thing you know, the war is in your favor. And we do live in a different place. And Dr. Zimmerman pointed out Europe would be a much different place than maybe what we would know had the outcome of World War II been different. But this is very significant. So we wanted to take some time out to talk about D-Day. Next, we'll line up what we'll do after 2 o'clock. One of the things we're going to be talking about is another high-rise. And it's one that could go up in maybe a sentimental place where you think, well... Yeah, okay, I I can understand, but, you know, I had some great memories in that spot. I've really enjoyed that spot over the years. Now there's going to be a high-rise there? I don't know. I don't know if I like that landscape idea. So we'll outline that for you. Plus, breakfast sandwiches, are they causing a massive demand, as a story suggested earlier this week, a massive demand in eggs? Are we seeing eggs needed at at a greater rate? Are farmers walking in, begging and pleading with their chickens, saying, I know you give one a day, you gotta give two. Come on, the rest of the working world is asked to do things like this. I know you do one. Come on, give me two eggs. Is that happening? I don't think so. But we're going to get up close and personal with an egg farm in Ontario to find out maybe not the effect of breakfast sandwiches on the egg industry, but overall how the egg industry is doing. And one of the big things that has changed in the last little while. That's coming up too. This is London Live on Global News Radio 980 CFPL. If you missed that story earlier from Vegas where a guy just driving along was mistaken for an Uber driver and two guys visiting Vegas jumped in his back seat. I mean, it's Vegas. Stuff like that has to happen every once in a while, right? Like every Wednesday. These two jump in the back of his car and think he's an Uber driver. He might have thought for a few seconds he was being carjacked and then he says he realized they were Canadian. Uh, that's good. Andy says, that Vegas story makes me really glad my car doors lock automatically when I put it in drive. That's a good feature, don't you think? That's that's a very good feature in that case. After 2 o'clock, we are going to be talking about two things. We'll actually probably be talking about 45 things, but two of them will focus on London and the surrounding area. The London part of it will be the fact that the Family Circle restaurant on Wellington Road is going to become a high-rise tower, it looks like. I mean, this restaurant's been there for a long time. It is one of the friendliest-looking restaurants in the city. has to be. 
It just looks friendly because it looks like somebody's house and has the big parking lot. You drive by and you go, that just looks like a nice place. And the food has always been fantastic. So that's one of the things that is happening. The question becomes, it's another high rise in and around downtown. How high risey do we want to get in London, Ontario? Because we've had some high rises for a while. We have one London place, which I think still stands as the third tallest building in Ontario, I think there's one in Mississauga that's taller, and I think there's one in Toronto. I think it's called the CN Tower, something like that, that's taller. No, actually, if it comes to a building, there is a building that is taller. But I think it's number three. So we've had that. We work in city center where you see the TD logo on the Twin Towers. That's where we work. That's where you can find Global News Radio. And so we've got high-rises there. We've got high-rise apartment buildings. But we're starting to get pretty high-risey. Remember, we've got a couple of projects that haven't even started yet. We have the towers over by Budweiser Gardens now. And then this would be kind of out of the downtown just a little bit and along Wellington Road. Is this a look that you like? Because once it starts, it goes. And I know that we're all talking about building up instead of out. And I don't mind that. I look forward to living in downtown London one day. In fact, my wife and I were wandering around down by Budweiser Gardens. And we said, I wonder how much it does cost to rent one of those apartments. And there was a number along the side. And so we called. And even though we're still a couple years away, we're starting to think, yeah, okay. Uh, if we did that, we did, yeah, this, this would actually work out just great. And I'm excited about doing that. I love high rises. But I want to ask you, how do you feel about this? Or would you like to see the city preserved in the way that it has looked? Where, yeah, you've got a few buildings, but they, they don't dominate the landscape. You don't have the string of high-rises. If you think about, you know, New York's maybe a bad example, but it's easiest to think of Manhattan, and it's just just a wall of high-rises. Vancouver's kind of spread out. It's kind of strange. Um, it has high-rises all over the place. Calgary's a good example. Calgary's got a big chunk of high-rises right in the downtown core. Do you like the look of that, or would you like to preserve... Maybe lower level buildings so that when we see those overhead pictures of London, Ontario, you still look more at the trees than you do at the buildings. When the buildings start to jump up above the trees, that's what you see. So what do you want to see? Is this okay if we add another high rise to the mix? We'll ask that question just after two o'clock as well. We're going to be talking about egg farming. Yes, egg farming. Is this something that's in a bigger demand, as a few stories suggested, that breakfast sandwiches and all-day breakfast has led to huge demand for eggs, may affect the price of eggs, well, that's something we're going to check into as well. First, though, we'll have news with Jacqueline LaBelle. We'll get you caught up on everything heading toward Election Day. Don't forget, Decision Ontario begins at 8 o'clock tomorrow night on Global News Radio 980 CFPL. We'll have local coverage. We will have commentary and feedback on the provincial level, and we will have all parts of the election covered for you. This is Global News Radio 980 CFPL. It has just been announced that 13 Reasons Why has been renewed for a third season. I don't know where they go with this. Have you seen this? It's a show that has come under some criticism. It's available on Netflix. It's a show that's come under some criticism because it 
deals very openly with things like suicide and sexual assault. This is not hints of anything. It's laid out in front of you. And there are disclaimers from the actors involved in the show. Before the show, there's one after every episode, and it encourages anyone who might need help to seek that help. But it lays it out very plainly. And we've watched it kind of side by side with our kids, not at the same time as our kids. They've watched it first, and we've kind of watched it second. And it's one of those things that, as a parent, you think, as you're watching it, our kids have already watched this. Hmm. It's one of those things we probably should have discussed as it was going along, but didn't. And that's kind of the way that it worked out. We've had discussions afterward. But I don't know if you've seen the show. If you have, it's it's pretty jarring at times. You They do a very good job of it. You are presented with situations and you think, okay, well, is this one that, that my child sees on a regular basis? Is this something that they're dealing with day to day? You know, because the parents of the individual who committed suicide in the show, they're not bad people. Uh, she wasn't a bad person. And it just lays out 13 reasons why comes down to the 13 reasons why this person committed suicide. And I don't want to go into any more detail than that in case you haven't watched it. But it's been renewed for a third season. And it's one that I'd say watch it, but at the same time, it's it's got a a lot of a lot of openness about things that I'm glad our world has. But at the same time, if somebody's not ready to see it, I I wonder if it's being handled in the right way just by simply slapping a disclaimer up. I mean, we can put anything on anywhere now simply by saying the following may have this, 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 and this, and watch at your own risk. And off you go. If you've seen it and have any thoughts on whether or not you think it should be presented the way it is, I'd love to hear them. Shoot me an email, mike at 980cfpl.ca, or phone lines are always open, 519-643-2222. You can also find right now on globalnews.ca, you can find an obituary that was written for a woman in Minnesota. I'm going to read it out. Here's what it says. Kathleen Schunk was born on March 19th, 1938. She married, had two children. In 1962, she became pregnant by her husband's brother and moved to California. She abandoned her children, Gina and Jay, who were then raised by her parents, Mr. and Mrs. Joseph Schunk. She passed away on May 31st, 2018 in Springfield and will now face judgment. She will not be missed by Gina and Jay, and they understand that this world is a better place without her. That's something that was put in writing as an obituary for this woman. Check it out. You can go to globalnews.ca. You can go to 980cfpl.ca. In a moment, I want to talk about something that is going to change in London, Ontario. It's something that's been there for a long, long time, and now... It's going to look a whole lot different in that area. And I think it's time that we take stock of of how London is growing and what you might want it to look like. We'll do that next because we're going to be talking about the old Family Circle restaurant 
It's now known as Spiro's, but you may still know it as the Family Circle restaurant. The Panopolis family, Billy Panopolis, played for the Western Mustangs. They owned it forever. Uh, and then they sold it in the early 2000s, I think. And as you drive out on Wellington Road, it's on the right-hand side as you go by Horton. And they're going to be putting up a proposed, or they're proposing, an 18-story residential high-rise tower on that site. So 18 floors, that's pretty big. That hits the old skyline, and that's one thing that we're seeing more of in London. You good with this? Are you okay with this if the skyline is dotted with high-rises? Or do you want London to still have that look of some other cities who've been able to go kind of high-rise free and keep the the look of things? Kingston, very few high-rises. Now, it's a smaller city than London, but anybody who's lived in London and then moves to Kingston likes to call it London light, because it's very similar, but they don't have very many high-rises. Is this a look that you're comfortable with in London? Let's get your thoughts on that, too. 519-643-2222. That's 519-643-2222. You can email mike at 980cfpl.ca. This is another high-rise being proposed for the area that will continue to change the look of the way downtown is. You okay with that? You good with the, the way that this is going? 519-643-2222. You can email Mike at 980cfpl.ca or you can tweet at Stubbs980. This is London Live. You're listening to Global News Radio 980 CFPL. Another spot to put a big high rise appears to be unfolding before our eyes. Side of the old Family Circle restaurant just south of the downtown on Wellington Road. And this is now known as Spiro's and... The owner has decided, time to retire. Running a restaurant is not easy. I don't know if you've ever done it, but it's a lot of hours. It's If you're running the show, if it's open, you're kind of there. And that happens for a lot of people. And so it's very valuable land. We have a proposed 18-story high-rise. It's just another one of those things that jumps up high on the horizon, changes the look of the skyline as you drive toward London, Ontario's downtown. Is that anything you have an issue with? Is this all good? Because we're doing an awful lot of building, and it's happening in a hurry. Email Mike at 980cfpl.ca. You can give us a call. Phone lines are open, 519-643-2222. You happy with the way the city is going? Got an email from Allie who says, I have no problem with more high-rises in downtown as long as rent does not continue to rise with them. My rent has jumped significantly in the past two years. If it goes up anymore, I may have to consider moving out of downtown. So that's one. Uh, Email from Dave. Dave says, progress. Don't get in the way. It will run you over. Okay, I guess. And... Ken says, family circle, Sunday fixture for our family for years and years. Ken doesn't say whether or not he's in favor of a high rise. But, yeah, that was that's I'm going to miss seeing that as I drive out of the downtown core. I'm going to miss seeing that restaurant. Now, there's no timeline on exactly when this is going to happen, but it is in the works. And it's a spot of another high rise. And there are cities that will kind of go anti-high-rise and say, no, we're going to keep things looking very much the same as they are right now. And I think Kingston is a great example of that. Is it okay that we're not going to be doing that, that we've already got enough towers? Maybe once it's, is it like a tattoo? 
Is that what high-rises are like to a city? If you get one tattoo, they always say if you get one, you're going to get a whole lot more. You can't stop at one tattoo. So if all of a sudden one high-rise goes up, is that just going to create more and more? Is that what it's like tattoos? That's what I'm thinking it might be. So rent is definitely another major issue, but you've got to look at rent in a different way, too, because all of our real estate is rising. Look at the number of people, and we saw numbers not too long ago from the Ontario Real Estate Board and from LSTAR, from London and St. Thomas Association of Realtors, that were able to pinpoint that Yes, we have been affected by Toronto, where you have people who live in Toronto and who have the opportunity to sell their house for a massive profit. They've done that. And where have they gone first? Well, they went to Oshawa and they went to Newmarket and they went to Guelph and then they went to Kitchener and Oakville. And then they got as far as Woodstock. And now it's London, Ontario. It might even be Strathroy and St. Thomas to some effect because you can get so much more for your dollar. And then you still have a whole lot to bank. And we've seen rents rise with that. So, you know, in the downtown core, I don't think a rent of $1,300 is foreign. I think we've got more like sixteen and 1700 if you're in a position like that, is that something that is becoming an issue for you, where rent is becoming a, a major factor in where you're not wanting to live, but able to live? And it's something we have to be cognizant of because, you know, our city council has made no secret of the fact that they want to see downtown growth. And I think if we were to look at this in a 20-year capsule, I think we should actually do that. I think somebody needs to paint the picture of what things were like. And I'm not a very good artist, so I'm not sure how we would do this. But if you were to go back to the late 90s and you were to think about downtown London and where it was headed, it wasn't going in any direction, really. You know, we had a gravel parking lot where Budweiser Gardens is right now. And we didn't have any of those stores and restaurants. We didn't have the Covent Garden Market. And everybody was kind of scratching their heads saying, well, what are we going to do? How are we going to fix up downtown? Because it's starting to rot. Nothing's going on down there. No one's going down there to shop. Nothing's happening. We need to make it a more vibrant downtown. And the market kind of came in. And then Budweiser Gardens came in. And remember, it could have easily gone to a different location. I didn't think it was going to the right location. I'm a horrible city planner. Terrible. I thought it should go out to Western Fair. But no, look what it's done for downtown. And we've seen a lot of other places. Detroit's doing this right now. Where their downtown, 20 years ago, what did you think of it? You didn't go there for a football game because the Lions played way out. You didn't necessarily go there for any kind of theater production or anything like that. Concerts, eh, they didn't play too many concerts at Tiger Stadium. They went to the Palace or, or they went to one of the outdoor venues. And you think about the attitude people had toward Detroit's downtown. Don't go there. You know, if, if you're going to go to Tiger Stadium, yeah, it's it's not the best part of town. If you were going to go and catch a Wings game, it was right across, what was it? It went right under the tunnel and Cobo Hall's right there, Right. And so that was good. You didn't have to kind of roll around downtown. Now, it's starting to look fantastic there. And it's because they're putting things that attract all kinds of people there 
at all times. And that's what you need. That's what we've done here. But if we want to have more people living downtown, and that's the real push in London, Ontario right now, how do we get more people living downtown? If we get more, you know what? We're going to get a grocery store. And if we get a grocery store, that's going to be a big bonus. Well, we put them in high rises. And that's been a a process that's kind of been unfolding over the last few years. And it's been a positive process. It's worked out very well. You know, we have a much more vibrant downtown. And it, it's only going to become even more vibrant in London. But at the same time, you got to be careful with things like rent. I mean, nobody's I – don't, I don't even know what we would do in terms of rent control. I don't think those words are going to be put together anytime soon. But in a lot of these new places, because what happens? You put up a new building, you have something that is very attractive. It's brand new. You have the opportunity to charge more rent than some of the other spots do. So we are living in a spot where we are going to see more high-rises. I don't mind it. I don't mind it at all. And uh, I don't think Dave does either. Dave said progress. Don't get in the way. It will run you over. And if that's what we consider to be progress, we're doing fine. Uh, in terms of what we have going on with other elements to the downtown, I mean, I don't know that we're going to be adding anything, anything major outside of shops or, or restaurants or anything like that in the near future. I mean, there's no, no big plan. We have to figure out what to do with Centennial Hall. But other than that, you know, it is going to simply be encouraging people to live downtown because it can be a whole lot more affordable. We are going to focus in on a story after 2.30 that kind of came out earlier this week. And as you read it, you went, ah, I don't know. I don't know if that's, I don't know if that's accurate. I don't, is there that much of a demand? This sounds like something that if you see it on Twitter or you see it on Instagram, you look very closely and there's that little thing that says promoted right underneath and that it's an advertisement. And it wasn't. What it was looking at was eggs and the fact that, according to some of the suggestions in in the articles that were written about it, that we're seeing a higher demand for breakfast sandwiches because you name a fast food restaurant or a restaurant that owns a drive-thru and they offer up a breakfast sandwich. There is no question about it. And with that and all-day breakfast, I don't know if Denny's has anything to do about this, but the demand for eggs has been a whole lot higher. We're actually going to head to an egg farm, and we'll find out a little bit about the day in the life of an egg farmer, and we'll ask about whether or not production has gone up in a big way. If you look out in Manitoba, Manitoba egg farmers say retail egg sales have increased 30%, but this is going back over 11 years And the thought was that it was the breakfast sandwich that has caused a lot of this because McDonald's has started putting one out, A&W has put one out, Tim Hortons has, they've had, what, the the bagel belt for a while. Do they still sell the bagel belt? Is that still a thing or was that just one of those limited time offers? So we'll talk about that. We are also going to look at how to kill a spider without having to use a Kleenex or a small piece of toilet paper or even your hand because somebody came up with a pretty unique way of doing it in the UK. And we'll have to tell you while we're talking about the price of things, 
Not the price of rent, not the price of a condo in a high-rise building, but in Hong Kong, a parking space has just been sold. Just a parking space. And if you have a parking space in downtown London, guaranteed you are paying over $100 a month for it because that's just the cost of it. How much do you think this particular space went for in Hong Kong? I'll tell you, it's more than $100. It was just sold for $760,000. Why? Well, because parking spaces are at a premium. If you can afford a $760,000 parking space, could you not afford a helicopter to just fly you in? Wouldn't that be more fun if you're going to spend $760,000 on a parking space? And does that actually come with monthly fees as well? I'm not sure about that. But this still is not the most expensive parking space in the world. That actually belongs to Manhattan and their skyline. Not $760,000, but a parking space in Manhattan, no bigger than what you would have for, for a car, $1 million. Somebody offered a $1 million, they ended up getting that parking space for a million bucks. So eh, maybe $760,000, that's eh, not that much. Maybe you don't need a helicopter. Coming up tomorrow, we do have Election Day, and we do have a big-time evening planned for you. Decision Ontario gets going at 8 o'clock, and we will have all kinds of local content and local coverage on what is happening. If you missed it earlier in the show or you missed it on the Craig Needle Show, Craig was talking with Professor Barry Kay, and Professor Kay had predicted that the PCs would grab themselves a majority. We've seen an Ipsos poll done for Global News, and that has predicted the same thing, that we are going to see a PC majority. These are day-before predictions, but Professor Kay pointed to the three ridings in London, London North Centre, London West, and London Fanshawe, and expects them to be NDP by the end of the day. We'll see when all the ballots and all the votes are counted. Time for news, and then we're going to head to an actual egg farm, and we'll see just how much breakfast sandwiches and all-day breakfast is affecting the life of the egg farmer. This is Global News Radio, 980 CFPL. Before we get to eggs and the egg industry, have you had an egg today? Great source of protein. You don't have to worry about cholesterol in the same way anymore. I don't know whether it's like coffee or red wine where they say, you know what, it's good for you today. And then tomorrow, mm, shouldn't have as much coffee. And then the next day, it's you better have a coffee. Shouldn't drink too much red wine. Better have a glass of red wine. I don't know. I don't know if it's like, but I don't think so. Because they have shown that the nutritional benefits in eggs far outweigh anything bad in there. And they've done that a few times. So we'll ask about that. We're actually going to go behind the scenes at an egg farm because earlier this week, the idea that breakfast sandwiches have had a massive impact on the egg industry. That just sounds like a commercial. So we'll dig a little deeper into this. If you were making use of something to kill a spider that wasn't a Kleenex or a fly swatter or your hand, what do you think you'd use? What would you reach for? 
A phone? Okay, well, you could reach for a phone. You could hit it with the phone. But if you really, really don't like spiders, it can be a crippling fear. So what do you do if you've got a spider in your house? Well, a student by the name of Demi, not Demi Moore, Demi Sweeney, from the U.K., is actually a criminology student, so not afraid of a lot of things if she's going to become a police officer. She decided to pick up her phone, saw a spider, hated the spider. Uh, just got uh, a note here from Kay saying, I use my husband. Okay, uh, yeah, I, I'm in that boat too. Uh, but Demi grabs the phone and she calls a delivery person and she orders a KFC meal. So she takes the spider is still over there in the room doing what spiders do, hanging out all by itself. And she grabs the phone, orders a KFC meal. The delivery driver arrives and she says, yeah, thanks. I, I'll buy the meal from you, but I really need a favor. I really need your help. Uh, before you go, could you kill this spider that's over here in my living room? And the guy did. She took a picture of this. The guy had actually arrived as a delivery driver at her house on a motorcycle. So you've got a guy standing on a chair wearing a motorcycle helmet killing the spider in her house. And then she sat down and had her KFC and everybody lived happily ever after. Next up, we'll go behind the scenes at an egg farm in Ontario. My name is Mike Stubbs. This is London Live. You're listening to Global News Radio 980 CFPL. Earlier this week, and we're only in the middle of the week, so it was only a day or two ago, we had all kinds of stories about breakfast sandwiches and their impact on the egg industry, saying that they are causing a major increase. Manitoba egg farmers had pointed to an increase of 30% over the last 11 years. Well, we have an opportunity, because we have a lot of great egg farmers in this area, to go behind the scenes at an egg farm to close out the show. Tanya Haverkamp is an Ontario egg farmer, and we're lucky enough to have her on London Live. Tanya, how is the day going on the farm? Good, Mike. I'm just uh, parked here in the yard beside the barn, so you don't hear any fan noises or the chickens, the hens, clucking away in the background, so it's pretty good. How close do you have to be to the barn before you actually do hear clucking? Um, actually, when we get out of the vehicle just outside the barn, you can hear them. They're, they're uh, just chattering away to each other and, yeah, content in, their, in, the, in the barn. <laughs> not enough to keep you awake at night, though, right? No, no, not at all. No. Okay. Sometimes we think we sleep in the barn, but we don't, in fact, sleep <laughs> in the barn. <laughs> well, we had a story this week that talked about the demand for breakfast sandwiches, that everybody is serving up breakfast sandwiches or all-day breakfast, and what that's done to the egg industry. Are you noticing that breakfast sandwiches and all-day breakfast have caused a real demand? Are you, do you have people knocking on your door wearing restaurant <laughs> hats saying, we need more <laughs> eggs, anything like that? Well, that certainly has helped the demand for eggs in Canada and Ontario as well. But over the last 10 years, each year, we've probably seen a growth of 3% each year. So the last 10 years has been about a growth of about 30%. And like you mentioned, the, the demand for breakfast sandwiches all day, because eggs are great no matter you have them for breakfast, lunch, or supper, if you're just craving a snack, you know, eggs are great at any time. So it does help. It does help our industry and, and 
keep shipping our eggs out to Canadians and they keep consuming them for us. That's good. Now, was there maybe a change? Because for a little while it seemed, oh, don't eat eggs because they contain cholesterol. And when the whole cholesterol alarm bells were ringing, what was that doing to your industry? For sure. So that myth, thankfully, has been been debunked by um, healthcare uh, professionals and doctors. And the cholesterol that's in eggs, it's it's not a concern. All the vitamins, minerals, and proteins that are found in eggs, it's a natural product. You know, we, we feed our hens a balanced diet. They've got the hens, they have nutritionists at the feed company. I don't even have a nutritionist telling me what to eat each day, but our hens do. So the, the stuff that gets put into their feed, it's all natural, and that's easily digested by our bodies. So people don't need to be concerned about that cholesterol myth at all. And people think it's better to eat just the egg white. But it's best for you to eat the whole thing, the yolk and the white, because it's got all kinds of vitamins and minerals in that yolk. So that cholesterol myth, thankfully, it's been debunked and Canadians are good to eat their eggs for, like we said, for breakfast, lunch and supper. We are talking eggs on London Live with Tanya Haverkamp, egg farmer. When you talk about your farm, there are so many people who say, well, this is how animals are raised and this is how things are run. Can you give us a sense of what the life of a laying hen is like? Sure. So on our farm, we also grow pullets. So that's a baby chick. So we get baby chicks at our farm. They're about a day old. So they come into the barn. It's barn. It's toasty warm. It's about 34 degrees in there, and there's lots of feed and lots of water for them. And as they're growing up and getting a bit older, we lower the heat down until it's about 20 degrees, so it's nice and comfortable. So we keep them in the pullet barn for about 19 weeks, and then they get moved over to the hen house because by about 19 weeks, they're going to be starting producing about one egg a day. And when they're in the hen house, they get access to feed and water 24 hours a day. Um, the temperature of the barn is always monitored. We monitor how much feed they're eating, how much water they're drinking, and we keep the fans running so the air is always comfortable in there. Um, on our farm, we do manure twice a week. We do manure Mondays and Thursdays, so that, again, helps with the air quality. It keeps it nice and fresh in there. And then the hens, as long as they've got plenty of feed, lots of fresh water, fresh air, they're going to produce about one egg a day. So on our farm, we have what's called an enriched system. So that means the hens, they have perches they can stand on, scratch pads they can scratch their uh, feet on. Um, They've got a nesting box as well. And surprisingly, when we put the enriched system in our barn, we weren't sure how many hens would actually go into the nesting box to lay their eggs. But probably a good 90, 95% of the eggs are laid in that nesting box. So it's just a little section of the of the housing unit that they, they can go into and lay their egg where it's nice and calm and it's a little bit darker and they lay their egg and then they go out and carry on and hang out with their other hens that are in the, in the system. So a little privacy tends to help for chickens. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. We're talking with Tanya Haverkamp, egg farmer, and we kind of started this conversation because of what was stated earlier this week about the high demand for eggs, and now we get a chance to look and see exactly how all of this works. Now, in terms of of selling eggs and pricing eggs, because you can go to the grocery store, and I I don't think the price of eggs has changed much in the last... I don't know, years, if you look at it compared to other forms of protein. Wow, we've seen meat jump up. We've seen chicken itself skyrocket. But the eggs seem to be a pretty consistent price. Am I remembering that right? 
Yeah, that's correct. So that's thanks to uh, supply management, fair farm pricing. So what that means, it ensures the farmers, myself and my family, we're getting a fair return for the eggs that our hens are providing. And then the Canadians, they're always going to pay a consistent price for the eggs that we produce. So it's a win-win on both sides of the coin, I guess you could say. The, the consumers are paying pretty much the same price for eggs, and then uh, farmers are receiving a fair return on the eggs that we're shipping to the grading station, which eventually gets sent out to the grocery stores. And how difficult was that to come by? Did it just sort of happen and, and all of the egg farmers went, yeah, we'll take this, or how did it work? Well, supply management, fair farm pricing has been in effect for years. As far as, like, I've been, uh, I grew up on the farm, so we, our original home farm was in Melverton, and I believe mom and dad started out with 7,000 hens, and um, just over the years, the farmers realized that what's best to um, supply Canada, Ontario, with the correct amount of eggs year after year, because we don't want to overproduce eggs, because egg is a fresh product, and it needs to get to the grocery store shelves quickly. So it takes about four to seven days for the eggs to leave our barn to get to the grocery store shelves. So back then, farmers realized that we need to make sure that we're supplying how many eggs Canadians are consuming. And as the population of Canada has risen over the years, the amount of eggs we need to produce over the years has risen as well. And that's that's thanks to um, to supply management, the fair farm pricing. It it just ensures there's a a nice balance between what we're producing and what the consumers are requiring. How long can an egg last? The eggs that you find at the grocery store, there's usually a best before date on them. And I believe it's about 90 days. And it's always important to keep your eggs that you buy at the grocery store in the refrigerator because once we ship them from the barn, they go to a grading station where they're going to get checked for any cracks, um, any misformed eggs or anything like that. And they get a little gentle wash at the grading station just to make sure that there's no little manure on it and that type of stuff. And once it gets that wash done, there's a natural coating that the hen puts on the egg once it's laid. And what that coating does, it prevents air from penetrating the yolk and the egg on the inside. And once that coating is washed away, the pour, the eggshell becomes porous and then the air can get into it. And that's why you need to keep your eggs in the refrigerator at home once you buy them at the grocery store. Now, if you have hens that, that you have in your own backyard or you buy from a farmer up the road or whatever, those ones, they don't have to get put in the fr- refrigerator, but the ones at the grocery store do, just so that the air can't penetrate the egg in the, on the inside. Look at what we are learning. Tanya Haverkamp joining us, egg farmer. Okay, to close out, we talked about a day in the life of a chicken. How about a day in the life of an egg farmer? Tuesday sounds like a difficult day with manure, uh, but overall, (laughs) what time are you getting up and and how long does the day run? Well, it depends. Like you said, what's going on the day. So the first thing that we're going to do is um, hopefully get an egg breakfast sandwich into us, whether it's made at home or we hit a (laughs) drive-thru. And then we're going to check on check in on on the hens, check the feeders, check the water lines, walk each row and make sure all the hens are content that they've got what they need. Write down all the records that we have to write down. We have an animal care pro, uh, program that makes sure that we um, are caring for our hens the best way possible. And then we start collecting eggs. So on our farm, we're in the barn at about 7 o'clock. It takes about an hour and a half to write down all our records, walk the barns, and then we start collecting eggs at about 8.30. And then we're done collecting eggs at about 
three o'clock, depending if the packer is working properly and that type of stuff. And then we start walking the barns again. So we walk the barn twice a day and then we start doing our cleaning, that type of stuff, wash the packer, wash the floor. And then after our check on the hens, we're done about four thirty, five o'clock. And chickens don't tend to observe weekends or holidays, do they? They, they don't stop <laughs> laying eggs on weekends or holidays. So are you doing this seven days a week? We share our mic. Unfortunately, the hens don't have off buttons, so they're going to be producing about one egg a day, and we need to get those eggs off the egg belt into the cooler because we have an egg pickup on our farm three times a week so that those eggs can get shipped to the grocery store. So each and every day we're collecting those eggs, and it's funny, if we are behind about 10, 15 minutes, whether we've got to fix a fan or there's a little adjusting we have to do in the barn, it can change the amount of eggs we get in a day couple of hundred eggs so it makes a difference it's good it's important to keep on that schedule for the consistency of the eggs coming up to the packer packing room and to get them through and into the packing room quick quickly now everybody does need a day off how do you take a day off well thankfully we've got a couple of excellent ladies working at the barn for us and you know we take turns collecting eggs on certain days at certain people's turns and you know it, it it's uh, it's a family farm, and the people that have worked with us, the one lady's been here for 16 years, and then the other lady's been here for about two and a half. So it's it's a, it's a big undertaking, but we wouldn't change it for the world. And if I was an egg farming, Mike, I don't know what I would do. It, it truly is something I'm grateful to be able to do and uh, something that it's enjoyable for all of us, and it's a good it's a nice, nice environment to be in with the family, so I wouldn't change it for the world. That is amazing to hear. Well, on behalf of everybody who ate a breakfast sandwich or who is yet to eat an omelet today but will, thank you for all that you are doing, and thanks for the uh, behind-the-scenes on how all of this works, Tanya. For sure. Thanks for having me, Mike. Tanya Haverkamp, Ontario egg farmer. And a little behind the scenes on the fact that, yeah, we have seen things in terms of demand rise for Ontario egg farmers. Price? No, that's that's kind of set so that they make money and the eggs can still sell on the open market. And uh, I don't know about you, walking around the grocery store aisles, I'll take that. We'll take a break. Up next, we'll revisit a couple of suggestions for what could play out tomorrow. Don't forget Decision Ontario at 8 o'clock. That's when it gets underway. This is London Live with Mike Stubbs. You're listening to Global News Radio 980 CFPL. If you didn't take advantage of the advance polls every year, don't you always say, yeah, we should do that, and then you don't do it, and then you hustle around on Election Day? Well, that's coming up tomorrow. Polls will open at 9 a.m. You can line up in the morning if you want to. They will close at 9 p.m. Try not to get there at 8.55 p.m. That's just annoying. At least make it 8.30. But do try and get there. Do try and be informed. And if we are to look at some of the latest polling information, and all of this is coming the day before, there is a suggestion, a new poll that has come out courtesy of Ipsos Reid and Global News that Doug Ford is on track to become the next premier and that the PCs are looking at a majority. And a lot of it would be thanks to Toronto. Now, or I guess the 905 area code. We have seen more seats added in. And this is maybe something that 
Do we need to revisit this? I mean, yeah, we base the number of seats, number of ridings on population, and that makes sense. But at the same time, do we need the structure of the provincial ridings to be so Toronto heavy? Is that something? I think that's something we need to revisit. The problem is, if you look at the way Toronto votes, Toronto's been very helpful in keeping the Liberals in power for a while. And if Toronto is the reason that the PCs get into power, you're not going to see anybody make any changes to anything because they're still looking down the line and saying, well, that's all fine right now that we're sitting here in power, but there will be another election coming and we want to find a way to win that. So we're just going to leave everything exactly the way it is. But Ipsos Reid and Global News, latest poll, is predicting that the PCs will win and that the PCs will have a majority in all of this. So we'll find out. We'll cover all of it for you. Decision Ontario on the air with local points of view and all of the local ridings covered and as well lots of points of view and lots of information based on how the rest of the province is voting and that gets underway at 8 o'clock tomorrow. Tomorrow on London Live we're going to talk with someone who probably from a young age said I want to be an astronaut and actually did it and it's from this area and it's a name you probably won't know. Jeremy Hansen. We'll meet him. Next up, we have news with Jacqueline LaBelle and Matt Trevithick. This is Global News Radio, 980 CFPL.